You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. This week, tenor Jack Swanson goes inside the huddle. The young American bel canto specialist has already debuted at the Rossini Festival in Pizarro and won Oliver's heart as Alma Viva at Santa Fe Opera Festival. Now he's in Chicago, set to make his house debut in another signature Rossini part, Prince Ramiro in Cinderella. And then, hey, Jack Swanson's co-star, the legendary Italian baritone Alessandro Corbelli, takes a free throw on singing Mozart, bel canto, buffo parts, and contributes to our Callus 100 celebration. Plus, in the two-minute drill, well, we're still waiting for our check from the estate of Lois Kirschenbaum. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo, even just email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab. It's at the top of the website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you're going to get the OBS beer coaster, OBS lapel pin, and the number one OBS fan foam finger in bears orange and blue just for sharing your own hot <laughs> take. Great crew on the show this week. Oliver Camacho, what's happening? It's already day two of the Australian Open, which means I am not sleeping. The schedule is so messed up. <laughs> Matches happen when I should already be like brushing my teeth. So, um, yeah, if I'm stir crazy for the next two weeks, you know why. I know why. Matt Cummings. I was talking to my family yesterday who was complaining about the fact that the Steelers game got rescheduled to today because of the Buffalo nonsense. But really, <laughs> what content could possibly compete with watching people try to shovel out 18 inches of snow from a stadium before the football game starts they had to like hire people to pay them 20 dollars an hour and give them food and drinks to just like first 200 people who show up here you go those crazy buffalo fans they would have done that for free bill's mafia is ready they're ready to go <laughs> ashley hardgrave well i'm gonna go ahead first of all and say happy episode 400 gang we did it Whoa, this is our geez. 400th episode i mean Man. not mine but the shows uh and then i'm gonna give you an early good call i am gonna thank my friend jimmy kimmel for providing us the best two and a half minutes on the internet this week p.s this segment has the obs bump whether they realize it or not because they named their segment karen rogers uh it's all about the beef that's happening between uh, sort of Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers and the uh, the sort trash. of Jets sort of quarterback. <laughs> so, yeah, both both <laughs> things are true. Uh, and and Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, I'm not going to play it for you now, but I'm sure we're going to post it on our site. And if you are just curious, go to YouTube and Google Jimmy Kimmel Karen Rogers. You'll be glad you did. I think we need to have a Hall of Shame, and we should do a whole Ooh. thing about Aaron Rodgers. First of all, how did we never think of this? Second of all, I will chair that segment, henceforth. <laughs> College football got crazy in the last Oh, and hi, Weston. <laughs> oh, Weston. Well, I, 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 think, I think George might be leading into it because uh, he knows that I'm still in shock after the exit That's of Nick right. Saban. <gasps> From uh, uh, from Alabama, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, too. It's always hard when uh, dad moves out. Exactly, <laughs> and I, I will say, like this is this is huge in Alabama right now. Uh, it is 
not since Bear Bryant has mm. Bama had a coach that is so universally respected, if not liked sometimes. Uh, it is really, really something. And I actually, you know, I was so in mourning, I didn't even know that they found a replacement <laughs> already. But actually, kindly let me know. Yeah, they have hired a Kalen DeBoer. Uh, who uh, actually has a pretty solid record. Yeah, he, uh, he worked with the Huskies for a while. Um, he's won 104 games and only lost 12, which I like. Um, and uh, and he has the most wins in a program history uh, in history uh, at the moment. So that's that's pretty good. So maybe there's a light at the end of this tunnel. I don't know. As an Alabamian, no more Nick Saban. It's 11, uh, negative 11 degrees outside right now. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's up and down, but, you know, we'll see if I can pull through and uh, hopefully the tide will keep on rolling. Weston, that is the most insightful and articulate you've ever talked about sports <laughs> in the entire time we've known each other. I'm so I, proud of you, buddy. This is why I just love you so deeply. Uh, and so you thought college football was crazy. And of course, the NFL this weekend is crazy, too. Packers Dude. winning the snow in Buffalo. <laughs> they beat the Cowboys. <laughs> the, the, the last time the Lions won a playoff game at home, I was in seventh grade. The NFC North is representing, and I'm always like a down low Lions fan anyway, so I'm very excited for this recent win. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So today we have two interview guests. First, we're going to start off with Jack Swanson. And if you remember back in 2022, uh, when I went to Santa Fe Opera Festival, and I think I came back uh, really excited about having heard Jack Swanson for the first time. It was not a name that I registered uh, when I was looking at the uh, at the season and deciding who I wanted to interview. And I feel like such a fool because uh, he has been steadily building his reputation. And had I got him back in 2022, it would have been really exciting. I said, here is somebody to look out for. Well, anyway, he has landed. He is full-fledged bel canto tenor of the moment. Uh, such an exciting performer. Before we get into the interview, let's listen to a little bit of his 2020 performance of uh, Barbara Seville from Opera Norway. Jack Swanson with uh, the Norway Opera. I guess Den Norska means Norway Opera. Yeah, yeah, from, Norsk Opera, exactly. From the 2020 performance conducted by Tobias Ringborg, that is very similar to what I heard in 2022 uh, when you sang at Santa Fe. And uh, first of all, welcome to Opera Box Score. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this. I think I might have said to you uh, offline that 
you know, I was at that show. I really was there to support Ryan Speedo Green. And I knew of Emily. I mean, Emily Fonts uh, gets a lot of work in Chicago. So I knew her. And, um, you know, uh, it's a show that I've seen a thousand times, but I've seen it once. It's hard to get me to enjoy, even though I love Rossini, it's hard for me to like really enjoy that opera unless it's a really good production because there's no, it holds no surprises for me. And I'm just looking forward to like people's licks ultimately, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was like thumbing through the program. Like, who's this Jack Swanson guy? Like, why don't we have like a, whatever, like a, a bigger name here at Santa Fe. So <laughs> I was, I had very low expectations and um, man, you stole the show. I mean, it was so good. I mean, Kevin Burdett is another thing. I mean, he is he's <laughs> Kevin, a freak. Yeah. Amazing. I, yeah. yeah. I've, I've worked with him actually four or five times now. And I have to say like, we just, when he's on stage with you, you can't help but just have an amazing time. Yeah, so, so. he was he was Bartolo, and he was the most bendable Bartolo I've ever seen. Before. <laughs> yeah, just like, that's a good word to use. So much stage antics. Uh, and Speedo, I mean, I'm not used to seeing him being funny. He can be funny. It was hilarious. Oh, yeah. you know? That was that was my first time working with Speedo, but I had a really good time. And and I was I was bummed at first because you know he actually had. COVID, COVID when he yeah. showed up and he had to miss a couple of shows. So that yeah. that was a bummer. But when he did get to go out there, we we all had a good time. And But uh, Nicholas we're... Newton was his understudy or his yep. cover. And now you're in Chicago with Nicholas. Now we're together. There's yeah. actually two. Also, Josh Hopkins, who was exactly. in that production, is doing Dandini here. So I've got a few friends on stage here in Chicago. So you're in Chicago to sing Tenerentzel. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I just want to close up this topic with Barber. Um, I mean, congratulations. It was uh, vocally very impressive. And that's that's the starting point. Uh, but you are great on stage. And you have, I don't know, I, I don't want to say confidence is not the right word, but and charisma is obviously ultimately what I'm trying to say. But you seem so comfortable in this music. And it has a lot of technical demands. And I think a lot of people, let's just... I'll be very like, there are people who are bel canto specialists. And when they're young, like you are, you know what they're focused on. You see the work. And it's important that, you know, young singers get a chance to do this type of role and do the work. And the audience is going to enjoy it because the singing is good. But you already come at, I guess you're in your late 20s now or your early 30s. I don't know. Exactly. Early 30s. Okay. I crossed that 30. Okay. Well, when I saw you, you were like, what, 29 or something? Yeah, or? actually. Yeah, 2022. That's right. So you were in your late 20s and you were already giving us like a full Almaviva. And when I was 29 and I could barely sing above a G, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the tricky spot. So yeah. it makes sense. <laughs> but I mean, when did you realize that, uh, you know, the, uh, the tenorino, the high lyric tenor stuff was going to be your your lane? That's a good question. You know, I always, um, I always had a high sitting voice. Actually, my voice was even higher. Like even where I would speak, I listened to recordings of myself speaking from when I was you know, 19 or 20 years old. My voice just always sat up there. Even when I first started really studying in school, um, you know, voice teachers and coaches were like, why don't we try, you know, Equidente was one of the first arias when I was mm -hmm. 19 or 20. And I remember it being really challenging then and still challenging now. And that's honestly something 
I really enjoy about this repertoire is that it really never gets boring, particularly Alma Viva um, is a role that every single time I come back to it, there is something new to find, whether that be in the music, in the comedy, in the text, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's the role I've done the most now. I think in Santa Fe, I had done my, you know, I think that was somewhere on my 75th performance of Alma Viva. Wow. Um, Cause I did, you know, I did a tour. One of my first things was a tour with Glyndebourne where I ended up doing 21 performances. So I, I racked him up there, but, um, but still, even at the end of Santa Fe was, uh, you know, I was discovering things in that role. And I do think that it's a role that I will continue to discover every time I come back to it. Um, but going back to the Rossini repertoire, I, yeah, my voice always sat high. It's always been a question whether or not you're really a tenorino or a tenor that can sing this repertoire because it kind of has to be one or the other. Yeah. Um, well, I'll take it and, back because you're not a tenorino to me. Uh, well, yeah, see, that's an inter- it, it's an interesting thing to kind of figure out because people do kind of choose whether or not they are doing Rossini, Rossini, or, you know, I've had a, a strange career in that I also do Candide and some of this like kind of lower, more musical theater, middle voice, lower part of the voice type repertoire too. So that's that's kind of a fun thing for me is I have to discover these roles in a different way in my voice than some of the guys that really, really are 100% made for it. Well, the agility is part of it, uh, which I think gives people the impression that maybe this is your your permanent lane. But I already see, even as a 30-something-year-old that you are, that you're thinking about space all the time and you always have like height in your in your aperture, like in your, and how yeah. you're creating sound. That's great and observation. That, that's, yeah, no, that's yeah. very true. I think and, about it a lot. And the height, I think, is what's going to invite the sound to get warmer as you get older. Uh, but I know there are tenors who kept their placement very narrow and the way they produce that sound. I mean, there's a famous singer, I'm not saying his name, but you know, like I think he experimented with inviting more sound into his, more height into his sound. And it didn't right. go so well, and he kind of scaled it back, and you know, um, and maybe now, like that, he's in his fifties or however old he is. Like he's now, like okay, let me try again. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And I do think you know, an artist has to choose at some point, like especially if you feel as if you've there are certain sacrifices you have to make to conquer repertoire the way that some artists do, and you know in their voice they have to go if i want to stay this way where i can do the agility like that i can pop out however many high c's or d's in a night and i can you have to find how your voice makes that work for however many continued years and i get as an artist after doing that for who knows maybe 30 years of the same repertoire or 40 eventually going i'd like to give something else a go and that might take some you know, time and some, oh, I got to give that another go. And I got, <laughs> so I, I completely understand that. Well, that. I, I don't think we, I mean, things have changed and we can no longer have people like Alfredo Krauss who like saying like seven roles in his life, you know, that's that time exactly. is over. Exactly. Even somebody like you, you've already did this world premiere, the Edmund, Edmund Tully. Is that what it's called? Tulane. Edward Tulane. Yeah. Edward yeah. Tulane. yeah. Um, and, um, you clearly have an interest in, as you you saying, Candide and just like sniffing around some of your other things. I feel like you also have some 
um, I don't want to say that you do mission work, but like there seems to be something about like maybe your spirituality or about your faith or something that is informing also some decisions you make artistically. I don't know if that's a like a fair assessment, you know. I don't know if I would say so much artistically. I mean, I I like to think that with each year as I grow as an artist and the repertoire that I'm going in, I grow just as a person. And I like to bring, you know, what I've discovered as a person and through the people I've met and through the experiences I've shared, whether that be through, you know, religion or through uh, just making new connections with great people, what then I can bring to the stage, maybe in the relationships I even have with some of the other characters on stage, mm-hmm. um, those all make big differences. So, well, anyway, it's it's very interesting to see what choices you're going to make going forward. But let's get back to the topic at hand, which is Rossini. Um, yeah, you, we are in a Rossini year, a birthday year, 2024, um, and uh, you are going to be returning to Pesaro. Uh, to sing Almaviva. Uh, it's my understanding you've already sung a recital there, but will this be your like stage debut? Oh, I actually, I did a recital there and I also sang in Signor Bruschino, ah, okay. which, is a, which is a very, um, you know, not performed very often that opera, but it's, but that's what Pesaro tends to do is do, you know, at least three quarters of their season are those operas that just aren't done very often. So, so it's a, it's a really cool place. It's filled with experts of the repertoire and how it's supposed to go. Not to mention, you know, Juan Diego Flores is there. He's, he's somebody you can talk to about it. His teacher Ernesto Palacio is in, you know, kind of in charge of the program. And he is somebody I, you know, talk to a lot about repertoire now, since I went there, I'll, you know, something will come in, and I'll just say, hey, what do you think about this role? And he'll say, oh, yeah, well, I actually sang that in blah, blah, blah with, with Marilyn Horn. And, blah. Yeah. and I'm like, okay. So he really knows his stuff in this repertoire. And that's the amazing thing about Pesado. And I'm really, really honored to have been, you know, considered and now picked to do Almaviva this summer. Um, you know, in Pesado, it's going to be the cultural capital of Italy. So it's going to have a huge... Um, influx of people from all over Europe and uh, they've actually added an extra performance or an extra production this year that uh, I think they normally do four and they're doing five this year and they've also added a concert performance of Viaggio which I've never performed um, and that I will do at the end of the summer with Vasilisa who's doing Cenerentola here in Chicago so it's funny in the Rossini realm you end up running into all the same people all the time it's really nice um, can you talk about the experience of singing Rossini in Italy? Just you when you did the Stabat Mater with the Academy of Saint Cecilia, yeah. which I'd be like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, you know, there there are there are high expectations of singing not only Italian, but Rossini in Italy. You know, they have their their people and their style in mind. And and it's actually luckily for me, like the style that I like that I you know, also think Rossini would have liked and what, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do, you want to honor the music and you have to honor the composer, but you also want to sing this repertoire the way that you'd want to hear it and the way that you want to sing it. So you just, at you, you can't, you know, somebody once told me the, you know, gave me the analogy of you can't be everybody's favorite flavor of ice cream. 
you know, it's good to be one that most people like, <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, you can't conform to everybody's opinion around what this repertoire is supposed to sound like or what their favorite version of Stabat Mater or Alma Viva was 20 years ago from this person. You got to do you and bring your voice and bring what's important to you in that music. And, and that's, that's just kind of what I've lived by. And I've, I've had really great um, mentors, even in Italy now, like I said, who have been really helpful in, in keeping me in line with that tradition, but also recognizing what I've just said, recognizing that at the end of the day, it's, it's my voice that is going to, you know, lend itself to the music. So there are uh, a number of like signifiers to me uh, of what makes a good Rossini singer or even who, how does Italian sound good, but also what works in Rossini. And, you know, there have been many people who have come down the pipeline over the past decades who have been successful in Rossini, even though they have things that would say that is not Italianate. And I won't name names, but what I listen for is sunny vowels, uh, legato, uh, crisp double R's and inter the consonants that are double consonants, like listening for those things that really break up the line or that add flavor to the line, you know, and also the shapes of phrases and not, um, you know, singing uh, a note that feels overpressurized or has a different speed vibrato just because it's a higher note, you know, and this is what was so impressive about my first hearing of you. It's like, here's this 29-year-old who's already doing these things and giving this music a shape and an Italian flavor and, of course, the sage stuff, you know? So that's what was so impressive. Are any of those things I just said things that you were taught or things that you're still learning? Or did you get advice from one of these Italian mentors like, oh, no, 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 no. I need to hear more are there or something, you know? <laughs> no, that's a really good a really good question. I uh, They were definitely things I was taught uh, from all different parts of of my career, to be honest, I can't really hand it to one person. You know, in school, we do a lot of work. I had a fantastic diction teacher in my master's program, Richard Beto, who's actually now at Houston Grand Opera and, um, you know, is the chorus master there and also in charge of the artistic team. So he's uh, he was a great resource for me. You know, I showed up into my master's and I'd done some diction work and I'd actually sung some operas in my undergrad, but but that was kind of a big turning point of now you really got to sound like you know what you're doing. And the other nice thing at Rice was that they actually sent us to Florence for a couple of weeks to do a full immersion program in Italian. You know, I did five hours a day of Italian work. And then I actually ended up going back a couple of years later to Siena and doing the same thing, uh, just practicing over and over again and speaking with, uh, you know, here, for example, in Chicago, I'm still learning. I have Alessandro Corbelli, who is mm -hmm. an unbelievable, you know, some would say the greatest of all time <laughs> in this repertoire. And uh, most would say that, I think. And he, with the language, is unbelievable. And so I've just, anytime I have somebody like that in the room, and if they're willing and open like he has been, I just say, what do you think about this line or what should I do with this word? Or, you know, and he has an immediate boom, this, 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 he knows this like nobody else. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned from a lot of different people. I'm also an avid listener. You know, I, I've, 
probably listened to 10 or 11 different Alma Vivas all the way through of my favorite people, you know, of just this, this idea. So I, I also pick the things that, that I like, again, I think it's important that whatever I'm doing, if I don't enjoy it, then I think that'll be that you can, you can tell on stage if somebody's just kind of doing it because they're told or because they feel that that's also important. Um, last year I had a, the real privilege of interviewing Frank Lopardo for my other job. Fantastic. And he, he told the story of recording Italiana with Agnes Balza and Ruggiero Raimondi. Yeah. And um, how intimidating that was. And like being, you know, in the read through or whatever. And, you know, that's the first aria of the night, you know, or the, of, oh, yeah. And, like, and Agnes Balza sitting there and you could just, he says, like, she nodded after he finished his <laughs> It's like, okay. That's great. We have a, we have mean, a tenor. <laughs> Frank was, is an, I mean, just an incredible singer and sang all of this repertoire so well. I mean, really, really, I, I mean, I know in the field he's very well known, but I think extremely underrated for what he brought to. It's my favorite Alba Viva on recording, sure. that that Deutsch gramophone with a yeah. in battle and another Absolutely. person. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So you, we were talking about the cast you have there in Chicago. Joshua Hopkins is Dandini. Maestro Corbelli is um, Don Magnifico. Uh, and then there's this Russian mezzo-soprano phenom, Vasilisa Berzhanskaya. We, she's never been to Chicago before. I just started listening to her Italiana. Um, I didn't know anything about her until very recently. Uh, what can you say about this this team you've got over there? Well, Vasilisa, to start with, I actually met very briefly in Pesaro two years ago. She was singing in Mose and Ferron, and I hadn't actually met her. She... The strange, strange thing in Pesaro is they have the opera house, which is right there in town where they do one of the operas. And then the bigger ones they tend to do out at what they call the arena. And so she was out at the arena. I was doing Bruschino in town. And so we didn't really run into each other very often. And I didn't really get to know her as a person. But I went and saw the performance and remember just going, when she started singing, it was like, oh, man, this is the the star of the night. I mean, she what's, was, what's impressive. Is it, is it the tone quality? Is it the volume? It's, it's the tone. I mean, that's always the volume, the tone, the color. Um, also somebody who I, I think she's, she's a few years younger than I am, you know, and, but, but you would have never known through like the artistic sensibilities that she's bringing. And I, and I, it's been confirmed here in Cenerentola, I'm sure she's, I didn't actually ask her how many times she's performed this, but it's very clear that she has thought out every moment of the role and has it completely in her body, you know, knows every moment, but also stays flexible in the moment. That's a really important thing in Rossini is that you have a plan, but if something has to deter from that plan, you've got plan B that's just as good. And I'm not even just saying in changing the notes of ornaments. I just mean in, oh, you know, my voice feels like this tonight. It feels like it's going to be more special if I choose to do this it, and as opposed to what plan A was. And that's a that's a really hard thing to learn, uh, you know, especially when you're young because you you tend to learn that just by doing it over and over and over again that alma viva is probably one of the only roles i feel like i have an a b c and d option for each phrase that requires that 
you know? So I can just tell that she has that for this role in spades. And when I heard her in Pesado, I don't know what she was thinking. I hadn't chatted with her about it, but I, she really, really was amazing in that role. Well, I'm going to give you a, a multiple choice here. You get to pick your how you're going to respond to this. Um, I think Ramiro has so many great moments, um, super lyrical moments that last only for a moment. Uh, they're not like big things, but um, after uh, Angelina comes into the ball and she sings, you have sort yeah. of like the response, which to me, I would be sweating buckets. Like every time I have to sing that, line. it seems so oh, stressful. You are, you are spot on. That yeah. is... That is the page of music mm-hmm. that I sing every single day mm-hmm. uh, while I'm here, leading up to, because there is something about it just technically wise. I mean, I'd love to just ask Rossini, why did you choose to do that at the end of this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, would this be natural at the end of this crazy middle You know, it's a really challenging page. and uh, And one that I think, you know, if you're not somebody who's, a singer, or you might not know that, or especially you just kind of go, oh yeah, they're just you know singing again. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds nice, but that is an extremely challenging page, one that I have dedicated a lot of time to, and again, one that you know I'm I'm ready to perform and ready to do here, but one that I tell that with time will just grow. Where I right now I feel I have A and B choices for that, and I want to have A, B, C, and D. Okay, <laughs> you know. So it's a it's it's a really challenging spot, but I but again, stunning music and and going into the. I was talking to Corbelli about this the other day. We we both feel that of all the Rossini stuff that we've done, and he's done four times as much as I have. Uh, that Cenerentola musically is just on another level um, than some of the other operas. It's really really every single moment and and the libretto i mean everything about this opera is just perfect perfect yeah i don't understand why it's not considered to be his masterpiece uh and like performed as such because to me it takes the baton from mozart in sort of like this enlightenment model where we have this suffering heroine and the way she you know conquers her enemies is by forgiving them and it's like in the sextet, um, I'm already crying, you know, during her ah, yeah. Oh my god, it's so it's so beautiful. And yeah. I like to, yeah. I like to think of Angelina as like Harry Potter, and like you know, she's been like living underneath the staircase, you know, totally, and totally. And, all, and all along she's been a wizard, and the wizardry is ah. the opera seria coloratura. Because she really just sings tra la 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 tra la la la. That's her song. But actually, oh. what she had inside of her was non pumesta the whole time. You know, so that's a really wow. I like that a lot. That's a really. I was thinking the other day, like she's totally Harry Potter. I, I'm not sure that I thought about the coloratura as the magical spell, but it but it makes sense. And it's also her magical spell is just her you know, the, the points of the piece in terms of just the storyline is that a kind, nice, humble person is who can turn anybody's head given the circumstances. Yeah. That that can be magic in itself too. (laughs) Well, the reason why I said it also feels Mozartian is that, um, you know, Mozart in the De Ponte operas 
uh, mixed opera seria with comic opera. And, uh, you know, we get this in the first aria of Dandini, where it's like he's pretending to be a noble person. And how do you pretend to be noble? By singing coloratura. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. comic characters aren't supposed to do that, you know. <laughs> It's true. I mean, that, and the perfect example in this is when Dandini has to go out and he's just mimicking me the whole time. And that's the only reason he's singing some of the most challenging coloratura in the whole piece. I mean, I know. he goes overboard with it, Rossini, but, but it then requires, I mean, I think Dandini is one of the hardest roles to cast, to find, and Josh does a fantastic job in it, but it's, it sits low. It has to be comedically great. It has great coloratura lines. You know, it's it's a yeah. challenging role. I mean, Alessandro Corbelli, <laughs> that was his specialty. So. What's his name? Yeah, in this yeah. production, actually, it was his debut. was hmm. this production, the Ponell production, as, as Dandini. Well, we're running out of time, unfortunately. And I wanted to ask you just a couple more things about we already know that Alessandro Corbelli is somebody that you look up to. Any other singer uh, who you really admire what they do and listen to, even if it's not in bel canto? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I I was thinking originally just of you know tenors. <laughs> I spend a lot of time listening to tenors. Um, the greats, you know, Frank Lopardo, like we like we said, is one that I listen to a lot. Uh, underrated. I like to talk about the underrated guy. One that I really really love is Bruce Ford. Oh, in, in this so stuff. dark. There's height in the voice. <laughs> oh, I think Bruce is like for me. That is the person that I again. I'm I'm not somebody who uh, something I didn't touch on that I'd like to say is that I just think it's really important for singers to have their own voice because if you can't tell within ten seconds, if you're somebody who listens and knows this person, if you can't tell it's that person within ten seconds of singing, there's really no point you can on the recording you can put it and so when i say like i'd want to sound the most like bruce ford <laughs> i do because i think that his singing is incredible but but you always have to keep your voice within that that style um so bruce uh salvatore fischella is an incredible tenor that i that i really especially in the high notes the the top i just think he's i don't amazing. know this name is is he uh early generation oh, he's, he's italian yeah he did you know, he did he did do Rossini, but he he tended to be a bigger star and more of the Bellini stuff, okay. like Puntani, and uh, he's he's amazing in that. And then for today's singers, you know, we just have some amazing Rossini tenors now. Obviously, Larry is and has been since I was eighteen years old. I think I remember going on YouTube and typing in might have even been like Una Furtiva at first, mm-hmm. and I heard it, and then I went, "Wow!" And then I realized. As I learned more, that oh, he's a Rossini guy. Yeah. I heard him so unbelievable. Juan Diego, you know, he he conquered these roles. He really did, and he he's a unbelievable artist in His many ways. Debut album of Rossini arias that I listened to and repeat so many times when it came yeah. out, like incredible, incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, in, in that repertoire, there's so many more that that I could list, but. But of the guys, you know, I definitely want to give a shout out to Bruce as uh, somebody that people in the business, like I said, know that name, um, yeah. know the singing, but uh, very underrated in terms yeah. of what he, what he brought. So I'm uh, a different generation than you. I grew up with Rockwell Blake and Francisco Ariza. Well, so. of course, Rockwell. Yeah. Rockwell, I should have mentioned him right away. He's he's especially in this role. I yeah. think Chad Angelo of, of 
most i mean at least for my taste i think his tarantula might be his best rossini role uh just sits so well in his voice and the aria is just like phenomenal in his voice so he's he's amazing (laughs) but i love his his terra amica that that's his to me i don't hear anybody else saying that well um we are a podcast that likes to um enjoy the correlations between sports and our art um and i didn't get a chance to ask you if you have any like favorite teams that you follow or favorite athletes you follow and if you could think of any thing in in your sports diet that relates to your opera diet yeah so it's a good time to ask because i'm a big green bay packer fan and uh you know yesterday they just wiped the floor with dallas <laughs> fantastic and um you know i was thinking about what <laughs> position the Rossini tenor would be. And I got it. I think I'd have to give it to the running back. And I'm okay. going to have to go Aaron Jones because yesterday he had a big day, three TDs, I think, at least as much as I could watch because I was in dress rehearsal, but I saw three TDs when I was <laughs> on the side. And, um, and I, you know, it's funny because with the color, like a running back, they've got to find a way to cut through all these places really quick and, mm-hmm. and be really fast and, it kind of goes along with the coloratura, I would think. So nice. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with I'm gonna try to hold up to Aaron Jones in my performance of Ramiro. And and the TDs are the high C's. So totally, totally. Yeah. So he just needed like I think eight or nine more on top of that three to to catch Ramiro. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, Jack Swanson, um, I'm so thrilled to have met you and I'm very much looking forward to hearing your Ramiro at Lyric Opera of Chicago opening January 21st. Thank you for being on Opera Box Score. Great to be here. Just a little bit of a rehearsal of the aria for Prince Ramiro from Cinderella from Jack Swanson's recent performance of the same role in Opera Mai- at, at Opera Maine. Once again, Jack Swanson is Prince Ramiro at Lyric Opera of Chicago starting January 21st. At Opera Maine. <laughs> Opera Maine. Okay. Free <laughs> throw. Couldn't decide if this was a free throw, if this was a Callus 100. We got a little bit of both. I interviewed the great mm. Alessandro Corbelli for my other job, and I asked him if it was okay if I used some of our outtakes for Opera Box Score. He didn't know what I was talking about, so I assume <laughs> I assume this is okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Corbelli is singing his signature role of Don Magnifico, also in the lyric opera Cinderella. 
So why don't we hear a little bit of his 2009 performance of Don Magnifico from the Met, conducted by Maurizio Benini. Un ciuccio! Un ciuccio! Chi l'ha fatto delle spille? Chi l'ha pesca delle anguille? Editato in ogni lato! Sono tutto contornato di memorie, petizioni, di galline, di storioni, di bottiglie, di broccani, di candele, marinate, di cervelle, pasticcetti, di candine, di coffetti, di piastrolli, di campagni, vaniglie, di cartelle. Ogni lato, ogni lato, sono sempre contornato, ogni lato, ogni lato, sono sempre contornato, di cervelle, pasticcetti, di candine, di coffetti, di pensoni, di tornoni, di vaniglie, di cartelle. Basta, 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 basta! Non portate, non portate! Terminate, terminate! Can you talk about what is bel canto and what is the bel canto approach? Bel canto for me, I, I am sorry to say, <laughs> means cantar bene, okay. cantare bello. Also Verdi should be bel canto, tosti, mm. puccini. Uh, I know that historically bel canto is uh, earlier, uh, last uh, 18th century, uh, beginning of the um, 19th centuries. But and and I agree, especially Bellini, who is the master of the following uh, uh, composers, Donizetti, Verdi. Uh, uh, I think the base of bel canto, in this sense, is the legato, canto legato, technically and musically. What are some of the things that are expected of the singer who sings bel canto, what are things that signal to you, yes, that is bel canto, or no, you can't do that in bel canto? First of all, the legato, mm -hmm. <laughs> first of all. And then also the, the coloratura, of course. But mainly, mainly, in every uh, time of, uh, of music, the expression leads, the, uh, the expression, yes, uh, uh, the intention of, what you are saying, singing, of course, is, is, a, is a, a light to what bel canto should be. And, and, and I think every phrase has to be thought as a bel canto phrase, even in Wagner. Hmm. You, know, you know, there is a, a very interesting uh, recording of Maria Callas, <clears throat> singing Kundri in Italian, uh, in, in Parsifal, conducted um, by um, Vittorio Gui, uh, with Bo Boris Christoff as Gurnemans and Rolando Panerai as Amfortas. Singing in Italian, sing sang in Italian, but you can discover some melody also in Wagner, thanks to Callas, also in Kundri. To find the phrase, the actual. To find the phrase. phrase, yeah. Also, in in the in in the recitatives of of Gurnemans, there is some melody. And I think what makes that uh, disconnect for people who are fans of Wagner and for people who are fans of Belcanto is that we don't see the phrase length in Wagner because the phrases on page on the page on the paper they yeah. look so long. Yeah. But you're saying that Kalas figured out a way to create the phrase because she knows bel canto yeah, so yeah. well. Yes, of course, of course. And she came from bel canto, from Bellini. Yeah. She was a, a very special, specialist of Bellini. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And uh, uh, we don't have to forget that Wagner was a great admirer of Bellini. Yeah, he loved Norma. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think he said uh, that there's no way to reorchestrate it. That yeah, yeah of course. He tried, <laughs> he tried, but <laughs> he gave up. You said Montarsalo, you studied Paolo Montarsolo. Yeah, Montarsolo. You said he was a, a brutal teacher. No, brut no, 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 not brutal, <laughs> but very severe. Okay. Let's as, as, a, as, a, as a director. Oh, he uh, was directing you. Okay. Yes. Also directing me in, uh, in Don Pasquale, my first uh, Don Pasquale as Malatesta. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he, he was very, very mm, sometimes tough, uh, but not cruel. Not okay. Cruel. But um, you learned timing from him? Especially from Bruscantini, Bruscantini. and Capecchi, but also from, from Montasol. Yeah. And looking at uh, uh, the great, uh, the great, uh, um, I mentioned you, <laughs> Italo Taio. Italo Taio. Another great artist of the past. But there isn't so much video. Uh, of these artists, um, you're the first one really who is in the generation where there's lots of evidence of, um, you know, the physicality of this type of of music and these types of yeah. comedia-based characters. And I think many baritones and bass baritones will be looking at your videos to see what the style was of this type of yeah. comic Italian opera. The physicality I learned uh, especially from Capecchi. From Renato Capecchi, yeah, and then you, you you have to find your balance also in 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 your body, and to study to study to study very hard also how um, to walk on stage for each character is different. Mm -hmm. Walking as Dandini or Magnifico or Falstaff or others. Marcello, which was one of my first roles, and I performed here for the first time as Marcello, is myself. Mm -hmm. I, I I didn't have to find uh, something special to perform and or to or to walk as Marcello, but as Dandini, especially in the in the Pornell's production, yes, because sometimes he have he has to dance <laughs> almost as in a musical. Yeah. And uh, so be very, very, very precise in the steps and in the in the, in the balance of of the body. You just did the Pelli production of um, La Fille du Regiment here in Chicago, and Alessandro, I was so worried for you because it seems like the step from off of the platform down to the ground is a big step, 
uh, it w- you know, when you come off the stage. Oh, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was worried, like, for your knees, like, at this point. like No, no. Well, I am 71, but my knees are <laughs> in their good health. They're in good shape. Luckily. <laughs> yeah. But that's also a production that has a lot of movement, and you even have a little, yes, little dancing yes. there. <laughs> uh, you, you, you can't imagine uh, Laurence Pelis Cinderella is much more difficult because the steps uh, uh, are very, very high. Mm-hmm. And I, I performed it in Los Angeles uh, about two years ago. Uh, it was very hard, but wonderful production. Who was the Angelina in that production? Oh, you might not remember. Uh, I have to think about <laughs> okay. uh, Yes. I, 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 I see. Um, um, an Italian mezzo, Serena Malfi. Okay. Um, you have worked now with so many generations of these bel canto specialists, Bartoli, Larmore. Have you sung with Divica? And, and Garancia. Lina Garancia. Uh, have, you, have you worked with um, Vivica Genot, for example? Yes, yeah. in Italian in Algeria, in, in Paris. And now Vasilisa Berzhanskaya. Very, very good. Yeah. Yes, I worked with her in, in the Barber of Seville in um, Rome mm-hmm. during the COVID. Mm. So it was uh, just for a film, for television, yeah. and, and uh, with a very, very clever mise-en-scene of uh, Martone, Mario Martones. And uh, I discovered a, a very, very good mezzo. Very musical, and his Italian is perfect. And uh, she studies very, uh, very hard. Your uh, daughter of the regiment, your your Marie, was Lisette Oropesa. Mm, and wonderful. I'm, I'm such a big fan of hers. Of course. Uh, I wonder, you know, you because you've worked with so many different singers, when you first heard her sing and when you first worked with her, did it remind you of anybody? It's like, ah, oh, I haven't had this type of legato and this type of charisma since, you know. Beverly Sills, not that you sang with Beverly Sills, but you know. No. Uh, well, it, it was a, a, almost a surprise because I met her at the Met when she was uh, probably covering uh, Lauretta. No, oh. Lauretta in the Tritico. I okay. was Janice Kiki, oh, okay. but she didn't sing there. She she sang one of the nuns uh, in uh, Suor Angelica. Yeah. And uh, it was very unexpected to find her as a very, very, very good singer, uh, almost a star. I met her in Verona, and she was already at the top uh, of uh, of his uh, of, of her level. And she is wonderful technically, acting, everything. She's a great, great artist. And uh, he, he, her legato, uh, for example, in Traviata, she, she does a wonderful violetta. Her legato is wonderful. But the style, everything, everything. I agree with you. And I, it makes me think of you because we listened to your Mozart earlier today and you sing it with so bel canto and you listen to her Mozart and she sings it very bel canto. You know, she, there's this tendency, I think, today to sound instrumental, you know, when you sing Mozart, yeah. but she sings it as you know with so much poise and so much nobility. Yes, there are moments in which you can, you have to be instrumental, mm-hmm. but not everywhere. 
But you cannot sing Mozart as Verdi. It's it's another style, mm-hmm. but it's written. It's written. <laughs> you you have to 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 go inside the, the the writing of the composer to understand what the composer wants. You can be legato also in Mozart, but it's another kind of legato. It couldn't be the same of Verdi or, or Puccini or Bellini. But it is legato, and you have to treat uh, your instrument uh, at the service of the music. And that was Maestro Alessandro Corbelli in his recording of um, Count Almaviva from Marriage of Figaro. We've had two Almavivas today uh, singing that very unusual coloratura jag in the end of the aria. So bel canto, so beautifully. Um, and I want to thank Lyric Opera of Chicago, Michael Solomon, for coordinating that conversation with Alessandro Corbelli. It was truly an honor. What a great pair of interviews to get on the show this week. Jack Swanson, I, I feel like that should be a character from a Benjamin Britten opera. Hmm. Doesn't that sound like the perfect Britain opera name? I don't it know. It really does. Or like, a, or like a gumshoe detective. Hey, Jack Swanson here, ready to solve the case. <laughs> Either way, he's extraordinarily good looking, whoever that Jack Swanson is. He is big. It's the operas that got small. <laughs> <laughs> Two Minute Drill is pretty big this week. Let's get down to it. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Opera America has announced the preliminary roster of delegates to the World Opera Forum in Los Angeles this June. The list of administrators and artists covers six continents. Full details after the drill. Last week, we reported that the estate of late opera superfan Lois Kirschenbaum had donated $215,000 to the George and Nora London Foundation for Singers, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. Her estate has divided a whopping $1.7 million among multiple organizations, including New York City Opera, American Ballet Theatre, Carnegie Hall, and the Public Theatre. I was just astonished, said London Foundation President John Hauser. I had no idea she had that kind of money. Tennessee has introduced bipartisan legislation that would protect musicians' voices and likenesses from voice cloning and AI deepfakes. The bill, which is known as the Ensuring Likeness Voice and Image Security Act, or ELVIS for short, (laughs) is one of the first of its kind in the United States. Teatro Cologne has fired music director Jan Latham Koenig, after the conductor was arrested and charged with child sex offenses. In view of the news of an extremely serious accusation against him, the theater has decided to dismiss him from all current and future activities, said Cologne officials in a press release. Latham Koenig is accused of inappropriate messaging with a minor. Zarka al-Yamama, a new Arabic language opera, is set to become Saudi Arabia's first grand opera running this spring in Riyadh. The story is based on a pre-Islamic Arabian folk tale about a woman, played by Sarah Connolly, who is blessed with foresight but unsuccessfully warns her tribe of imminent danger. It features a libretto by Saudi writer Saleh Zamanan and music by Australia's Lee Bradshaw. 
A work stoppage at Staatstheater Wiesbaden has forced the cancellation of a performance of Othello and threatens a sold-out run of The Ring Cycle. A conflict between artistic leadership and the managing director over how to make up the company's deficits has led to artists and employees' unwillingness to sign new contracts, leaving remaining staff overworked and underpaid. In one case, a lawsuit has already been filed by designers, says house head of theater Wolfgang Behrens. We are heading towards the abyss. Star tenor Jonas Kaufmann was awarded the Commandeur de l'Ordre National de la Légion d'Honneur de France, saying, I thank the French government for underlining the importance of culture as a unifying force and international language. May we all value and recognize our similarities and celebrate rather than create conflict about our differences. On the disabled list, Auschwina Stundeta will make her Covent Garden debut this week as Electra, covering for Nina Stemme, who has withdrawn because of illness. Solange Merdinian will take over the title role in Maria de Buenos Aires at Florentine Opera. She is replacing Operaland's premier Maria Catalina Cuervo, who is expecting twins. Congratulations to both Solange and Catalina. And on this day, January 15th, it was the first performance of Handel's Ezio in 1732. It was the birth of Jean-Baptiste Faure, uh, a French baritone who created the roles of Oel in Dinora and Rodrigo in Verdi's Don Carlos, as well as Amle in Tomas's uh, opera. Amle. Amle. In 1845, uh, tenor, German tenor Heinrich Vogel was born in Munich. Uh, he sang, oh, he created the role of Loga in uh, Das Rheingold and Zygmunde, Zygmunt in Die Valkyrie. That's a big deal. Uh, baritone, British baritone Rutland Barrington uh, was born in 1853. Uh, he created so many roles in Gilbert and Sullivan Albert operas, I cannot even name them all, but they include uh, Dr. Daly in The Sorcerer, uh, Corcoran in HMS Pinafore, and the Sergeant of Police in Pirates of Penzance, among many others. In 1893, it was the birth of English composer and playwright and actor and homosexual, I think, uh, Ivor Novello. <laughs> Louisa Tetrazzini was born this day in 1908. And in 1958, on January 15th, it was uh, the first performance of Samuel Barber's opera, Vanessa, at the Met, conducted by Dimitri Metropolis. That is your two-minute drill. What better clip on this cold, cold day, if you are in Chicago and many other places, uh, than Rosalind Elias, the originatrix of Erica in the premiere recording of <laughs> Vanessa. What other clip are you going to listen to on the second Sub-Zero day in a row? Bus the winter comes so soon, the mezzo-soprano national anthem. <laughs> the so uh, World Opera Forum was last held in 2018, I believe in Madrid. It was definitely in Spain, and uh, it's happening again this 
summer uh piggybacking or i suppose mm, the uh Pre-game. fronting The pre-game. It's the pre-game <laughs> to uh, the Opera America Conference, which is also in Los Angeles. So they've announced this slate of delegates for the World Opera Forum. This is the, the preliminary round. There are a ton of names. I'm not going to list all of these. Nothing could be less interesting than that. But they're from all these different countries. Six, I was tickled that Opera America was like, yes, they're across six continents. And I'm thinking like, so who's that opera person from Antarctica? Come on. <laughs> Get with the PG. Really missing out. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has their first grand opera. I'm, I'm waiting for Antarctica. Who are some of the highlights that uh, on the list here if we want to talk about some of these delegates? Well, Saudi doesn't have a delegate, although the United Arab Emirates does. I will all so just we'll, we'll start with the US. Afton Battle is on the list. Friend of the show. Uh, James Dara. Friend of the show. Keep keep those checks coming, J- Jimmy. Corey Destor, Missy Mazzoli, Beth Morrison, mm. uh, Julia Nulamiran, who's the uh, CEO and general director at Opera Columbus, Tim O'Leary at Washington National. I Matthew think he's a friend Ozzano of the show. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, might be. Morris Robinson, who of course of was on the show over the summer. Yuval Sharon from um, Detroit Opera. You know who I think is missing from this list is Peter Sellers. Now, I get that he was the headliner at Opera America this past summer. The man lives in Los Angeles, and he is, has to be one of the seminal directors of the the late 20th and early 21st century. I'm surprised that he's no not emeritus on role, really. Really not. <laughs> I'm also surprised librettist Mark Campbell is is not on this list as well. I don't think we have a librettist from the U.S. on this list. There's a lot of administrators. It's less about sort of the artist side. I'm I'm also noticing a disturbing lack of opera podcasters on this list, which always concerns me. (laughs) Well, nobody wants to hear them. I will tell you who also is missing is uh, anybody from English National Opera. (laughs) There is no English National Opera. They don't have the budget to get to L.A. anymore. (laughs) Laura Canning uh, from Opera North, the, the GD there, and Hannah Griffiths, who's the GM at Birmingham Opera Company, one of the most unknown and brilliant companies, in my opinion. If there was going to be anyone from Vspot, and it does not seem like they're going to be making it either. Probably not. No, Laura Berman, who's American, the intendant in Hanover, will be there as well. Big problems in Vspotten. Yeah, it's truly weird. I, I was trying to like struggle through this story with Google Translate in my... Uh, recollection of German, but it sounds like there are some pretty strong uh, opinions about how the money should be spent, and they have literally a sold-out ring cycle waiting in the balance that could be canceled at any second if this is not resolved. And this has been going on for uh, over a year at this point, this dispute. This is the first I've heard of it because, you know, this has been very much a German sort of uh, uh, affair. Uh, and it is not really crossed the side of the pond, but it really sounds like this whole thing could blow up in a really spectacular way, uh, in a way that, you know, we're used to seeing things blow up like that here in the U.S. when it comes to <laughs> opera companies suddenly running out of money. And locking out all their artists to make ends meet. Yeah, yeah, it is It is pretty bad. There are some contracts. There's at least one so- lawsuit brewing. There is predictions of more further lawsuits with uh, a lack of compensation. Everyone's overworked, everyone's stressed, and, you know, putting on the ring cycle is not cheap, so... I mean, it's a perfect storm, right? It's like nobody's getting along or talking to each other. There's a huge financial deficit, and you have the biggest 
sequence of operas on the table with everybody ready to see them. It's such a shame because Wiesbaden is a gorgeous opera house. It's a Staatstheater, so it's funded by the state of Hessen. So it's got some yeah. big money behind it. And everything is heading, as Wolfgang Behrens said, towards the abyss. Yeah, it, it's it's really looking bad. Uh, maybe they should call up Saudi Arabia and get some of that oil money really quick, <laughs> because now they've got now it's they've going got money somewhere. for opera. Yeah, this is a, an interesting story that I did want to talk about a little bit. Um, uh, Ashley had to uh, run out early, but through the magic of editing, you'll hear her again at the end of the show. Uh, I, but she had some opinions that I I more or less agree with. First of all. Um, Saudi Arabia is doing a lot of investing right now, as is a lot of the uh, that sort of area, to sort yeah. of attract uh, wealthy Westerners um, to be tourists, to you know have extra homes there, to spend extravagantly, and frankly, they need uh, they need uh, uh, the rich people to come to their operas there because Saudi Arabia, I don't know if you know this, has a pretty um, shall we say suppressive history of the arts <laughs> so, to say the least to say the least um to the point where you know they could have had their first grand opera quite a long time ago but they have not um honestly the fact that this is going to be starring a woman is pretty progressive for them uh this is uh I mean I, I will say like you know I I'm I'm kind of mixed feelings about this I I think that it's a good thing to bring opera to people who might not ordinarily be able to see it. Um, I do think that this is mostly uh, a way to attract rich Westerners to see uh, an art form that impresses them, that you know allows them to spend more money in Saudi Arabia, which I I don't really feel that great about. Um, but um, you know, there's a reason that you know the arts are so heavily suppressed in Saudi Arabia and more of the arts in the abstract can be a good thing. But um, yeah, I, I'm very curious to hear. I'm, I'm always very excited when a country that historically does not do opera does an opera. So if there, if there's a recording that comes out, I will absolutely listen to it, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting politically and financially more than the music itself, probably. <laughs> What about um, Jonas Kaufman? He gets the uh, award. He's the commander the now. Government. He's a commander now. Does he get a sword? I need somebody from France who understands these honorary titles. I think the Legion of like, Honor. That's like a real one. I know. I think this is his third. <laughs> this is his third such award, and he keeps getting promoted. Like I think he was first an officer, and then he became a commander, and or then he became no. He a, just became a commander. Okay. So if then, he gets three more, he gets one for free. Okay, so first, I think the first level is legionnaire, then officer, then commander. I think there's one more. I'm serious. I think there's one more after this. But there's a keeps... grand officer. Okay. <laughs> oh, chevalier is the lowest one. Oh, you're just a knight. Ooh. Oh. Okay. Well, I. Anyway, Jonas Kaufman keeps getting uh, honored by France, and uh, the article where we found this, uh, which we'll share with you, is a little bit shady at the end. It says um, he is known as one of the best performers of, of our time. On the other hand, he has a policy of not singing when he is not feeling well, which has led to many cancellations. <laughs> That's so fun. I mean, it's true. They're not wrong. Yeah. Um, but, true. you know, uh, they could always just replace him with AI unless he's performing in Tennessee, mm -hmm. according to this new. Uh, how do you like that transition? I I'm really getting good at yeah, that. Yeah. And we're trying to wrap up, too. But well, good. I like the transition <laughs> even less than I like the 
acronym for this bill? It, it is Tennessee. They had to call it Elvis. I, I just want to say really quickly, this is genuinely an exciting bill. Probably the first bipartisan thing I've seen that I'm like, oh, that's actually a good move. Good, good job, everybody, um, because we are seeing more and more of this sort of AI vocal cloning and stuff like that um, around. And if there are not, you know, stuff put if there is not legislation in place to keep people's work and likeness and image and voice from being stolen, it will be stolen. So I hope that more of this, these kinds of legislations get passed all over the U.S. and all over the world as soon as humanly possible. Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Seriously, though, what intern came up with the ensuring likeness, voice, and image security? Act? <laughs> they were trying just, really hard. They were they were clearly trying very, very hard. I, I wouldn't be so bold as to make that a bad call. However, we're going to kick it off with Ashley. By bad call, it's just going to be bad. And it's going to be for Pat McAfee. I think Pat McAfee needs to sit down and stop talking. I know that's going to be challenging given that he has a talk show that runs on ESPN. But between the Aaron Rodgers kerfuffle that was last week and him quoting and aligning himself somewhat with Martin Luther King this week and talking Pat. about being canceled, we just, it's enough. Enough, Pat. We need you to sit down. We need you to stop martyrizing yourself and saying that you've been canceled by both parties. Honey, I don't think either party wanted you in the first place. But give it a rest. Give it a rest for like two weeks. Over to Matt Cummings. Uh, some exciting news out of our sister Midwest state. Uh, it's always nice to have one good thing to say about Indiana. But the the School of Music there is going to be co-producing a show with the Metropolitan Opera and will actually be premiering the new Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay opera based on the, the Michael Shabon novel. Uh, and that is with music by Mason Bates and a libretto by Gene Shear, which I am really excited to hear eventually. So good on Indiana. Fun fact, I use uh, Jacob's School of Music stage is actually bigger than the Met stage. Weston Williams. I have a bad call for uh, for really Apple Music and anything trying to, you know, categorize and get precise metadata. For some reason, uh, when I search for the operas of Hans Werner Hense, it's so hard to find the really good stuff like the um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> my very favorite Hans Werner Hense opera, The Tedious Way to Natasha Ungeheuer's Apartment, which is a banger. <laughs> it's a bop. I did not know it was available for streaming for the longest time because I didn't search it exactly the right way. And Apple Music, Apple Classical, you have disappointed me. I was trying to find this and you didn't show it to me. Get your act together. Weston, everything I said about loving you about sports, I just take away now because of <laughs> what you said about Henza. Oliver Camacho. I meant to do this last week, but I just I wasn't really that well put together because we were it was our first podcast back after the break. Um, I have a good call, which is a uh, video that Jakub Josef Orlinski made in collaboration with Netflix to promote Maestro. And it's in Polish. I'm going to have Weston add a little bit of the audio here, and we will link it to the webpage uh, this week. So go to operaboxscore.com to watch the whole video. But it's so adorable, and it's how to behave in a concert. And it's in Polish, but I promise you, if you watch it, even in Polish, you will understand. Jakub is so charming. And plug for um, Opera Now, which got together this past weekend to review Maestro. If you're interested in hearing my thoughts on Maestro with um, Michael Rice, Doug Dotson, and Roberta Senatore. I just realized that um, Orlinski, you, you could just call him JJ. Like JJ Orlinski. 
Like, <laughs> just sounds very... Well, it's like the Michigan quarterback, J.J. McCarthy. Hey, that's uh... it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at the website operaboxscore.com. Hey, that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the support the team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant, Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave with our guests, Jack Swanson and Alessandro Corbelli. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, but please don't try to clone the OBS team and create a competing (laughs) podcast. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Saudi oil money, which you can donate at the website. (laughs) Join us.